0: Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Gary, and welcome to the second season of It's Personal. Okay, good. This is going to be really dope, but I don't want any
1: of <laughs> you <laughs> putting yourself out there as a practitioner. We're growing at
0: Not learning. Not at all. My name is Kwame Ambalia. Uh, I'm an author. Hi,
1: I'm Padma Venkatraman, the author of The British <laughs> Home. Sure. Yeah, my name's Natasha um, Diaz. Co-switching and all those things. I mean, all of that, I... all the time. I mean, he's still on the road all the time, but you know, like as a new mom, the
0: relationship that I have cultivated from there.
1: Uh-huh. I'm, I'm so excited here. to talk to you. <laughs> this is right. This is so fun. I am Joanne Ramos, and I am the author of The Farm.
0: I'm so excited to have you here, Joanne, today. Um, as we were just kind of talking about before, I press play. Um, four of us from our school here in Manila just finished reading your debut book and we were just blown away um, with the experience that you put us on just through your storytelling. Um, let's start by just how did you get into to write it? You obviously have um, a very special talent for it. Oh
1: thank you. You know it's funny I am um... I have always loved writing and and I realized that when I walk, I have three children and my daughter has always, she's scribbling all the time, from the time she could write and that was me. Um, I got my first diary, at my first communion actually, so I was six years old and I've kept one ever since. There was a few years when I had three young children where I think I was too bored or excited, or, or like exhausted to write because it was a little like Groundhog's Day, diapers and breastfeeding and it wasn't that exciting to write a diary, but except for that, and I just turned 47, I've kept a diary almost my whole life. So I've always loved writing, but to tell you the truth, I never thought of it um, as more than something that I needed to do on the side. It was a compulsion, but it never seemed very practical to me. Um, I don't even think I thought of it as impractical. I just never thought about it as a real way to live my life. And just having had to analyze it to some degree now that I've been on book tour and a bit more in the public, I think, I think that it has something to do with being an immigrant to the U.S. and being raised in a way by my parents to just be practical and learn how to make it. You know, mm-hmm. just, it's just, just to find my footing and to have a successful life in America did not very obviously lead to making up stories. Um, And I don't remember my parents ever saying, don't go into the arts, but it's just not how we were raised. And so when I went to college, um, I went to school at Princeton, which was a big dream come true for me and for my parents as well. It never occurred to me to major in English. I actually distinctly remember having a conversation with a friend from New York City, a nice boy, who was very wealthy, who was majoring in English. And I remember thinking to myself, well, he can major in English <laughs> because-
0: It's possible. <laughs>
1: he's not gonna have 200 grand of debt or whatever I had. I had a lot of debt when I graduated, um, but I didn't, it just never occurred to me, but I was always writing on the side. Um, and and it really was something that I kept to myself um, because it makes, it's how I digest the world. It makes me feel grounded. And it really was only way later Um, when I'd been home for a few years with my kids and was um, contemplating returning to the workforce as a journalist. I had a lot of different careers. I worked in banking, private equity, journalism at The Economist, um, full-time work, part-time work with kids, and then home for a few years with the kids. It was when I was contemplating going back to journalism that I realized I was only going back to journalism because that's what I'd already known. And there was some, to be very honest, some cachet to The Economist in a very careerist city where every dinner party, someone asks you what you do. And for a few years, I was saying, well, I'm at home and feeling yep. invisible in a yeah. in a place that's very careerist like New York City. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really my husband who said, do you, is that why you're going to go back to work, to work for The Economist? Not that I didn't love it for a time. He's like, but um, is that really what you want to do? And mm-hmm. I realized that it wasn't. And we can talk later about all the ideas that have been teeming in my head for so long. But I did have a lot of ideas teeming in my head for a long time. And I decided to finally try right. to put them in a book. But I did right. not know what I was doing. I had not studied right. it. It wasn't a practice for me yet. It had to first become a practice and then a craft. And then and then it was a book. But right. that was all. I'm acting like I knew. I had right. no idea what, what was going right. to happen with
0: that. And that's so cool. I, I, I think with that, struggle and that experience itself it just tells you how much life can take control of you and the pressures of society and how they can influence how you decide what's next um i think that's interesting i'm very happy that you have kind of found that i'm i'm assuming that happy place now in writing um yeah i you've i've definitely just with that conversation itself or that response i have so many questions for you first thing is how are you doing with like all this stuff happening and you mentioned you have kids um and a partner at home just how any other book that just came out um i'm wondering like how are things in regards to just like life you know look
1: we are lucky enough that we can we could leave new york we just fled um to upstate new york which is very Mm -hmm. rural where we are it's very isolated and pretty lonely because you don't even see people sometimes Mm -hmm. but we have one member of our family has an underlying lung condition and we were really and so we didn't want to stay in the city, and, that, and we left way before it was bad in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can we can quarantine at home. I mean, we have friends. I definitely have friends who are either in the medical profession. Um, no surprise, because the biggest I think it's something like almost 17 percent of nurses in the U.S. are are immigrants, and the biggest share of those are from the Philippines. And I know a number of uh, Filipinos who are nurses, but I also have a number of Filipino friends who are. And other friends who are who are essential in other ways, essential in ways that people notice them now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But let's say three months ago they weren't noticed, meaning their caregivers or domestic workers or you know. And um, just my years at home, I became friends with. I had a nanny for a time when I was at the Economist, but because I was home in the parks and playdates, I got to know a number of women who work in domestic service, and and they are still in New York and they're still working for the most part um, because mm-hmm. they're clients need them and they need the job and so it's this duality of on the one hand feeling very lucky that i get to be with my kids and my husband safe somewhere Mm -hmm. Um,
0: welcome back everyone to another episode of it's personal and today i am uber excited to have our guest today um, me, a few college, just finished reading her debut book, and we're super excited to talk to her about it today. Um, can you please introduce yourself?
1: But then knowing that so many people that we care about can't, and, and so trying to do right by that, which not to delve into the book is why, when people told me, well, Reagan is some avatar of white privilege, I'm like, I would take out the white. I would say that she was my way to explore if you've earned your way or were born into privilege, um, or have more privilege than others? How do you do right by that? Um, mm-hmm. And that really is how where her character I didn't mean to make her some avatar of white privilege. It was more a question I always have in my head, which is how you do right. You try to do. How do you try to live in the way that you would be proud of when I'm 80? Hopefully, God willing, I make it to 80 or 90 mm-hmm. and look in the mirror and say that I'm okay with with how I did it. And and I did have a career in finance for a bit. I did, you know, I, I have a very different life than I did growing up. And and um, I'm sorry, I'm totally rambling. I just think it's a really fraught time. It's not just, because as I say, we're fine and it's hard. It can be hard to be isolated. I know that it's so much easier than so many people have it right now, Mm -hmm. that it's not guilt, it's just cognizance and then what you do with that. But I know that is maybe not what you were asking and that's a long rambling answer, but it's kind of why I wrote the book because I think about this shit stuff all the time. Um,
0: Mm-hmm. No, I Joanna, I, 100% I feel you. I hear you. I, I I, know exactly what you're saying. I think me and my wife had this conversation just from sitting in our two, two bedroom condo in Manila and walking outside when we need to go to the grocery store, when we need to go um, to the bank, or when we need to go anywhere and we see it and we are sitting very comfortable as well, um, knowing that the little things that we try to do as a school, because the school does try to help those who um, are in need, you know, like the the frontliners who are working outside and with people daily, and um, they are still, very much at risk because they're out and they're working. When yeah. I me, mean, as a teacher who's sitting in again this very comfortable condo, can have food delivered to me, etc. Um, it's very very comfortable. So you're not rambling at all, and I 100% connect with you. So I totally agree. And family for you, how how's family doing? Is family um, okay as well during these times?
1: My family here with me is okay, but you know we family sort of all over. Who wrote my mother's alone she's 82 so you worry about her my one of my good friends because we did leave new york city and we left our empty apartment there one of my good friends is in domestic service she has she's a single mom with three kids so she's living in our apartment right now so it's you know it was the first two weeks when i was like a mental free fall i think it was just thinking about all the people that serve in our orbit and make trying as best as we can from far away to make sure they're okay or someone's checking on them or an empty apartment in New York, and someone's, st- you know, that kind of stuff. And so I think I've been able now, I can read. I love reading. I, I definitely couldn't work in the first in any real way. And again, that's a privilege, right? Like if I were an essential worker, I mean, mm-hmm. I would have to work. I was just frozen in a way um, until I could figure out that our actress babysitter who's still left in New York, used to help me in the afternoons so with like, my kids, is she okay? Does, is she okay without, she has no actress gigs right now. Our piano teachers is from Israel, and he, um, his wife is in medical school in Italy, and he lives in one bedroom by himself. Is he okay? Well, you know, all that. Once I at least was in touch with everyone
0: mm-hmm.
1: and found out that everyone so far is okay, and actually, a couple of people I know have gotten COVID, thank God. My auntie did, and she seems like she's okay. She's a little older. Everyone has seemed to pull through in our closest level of orbit. Of course, we have friends in the next mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. level around us that the news isn't as great um always Mm -hmm. but our close close family friends
0: so far yeah i'm happy to hear that and i think again it's one of those things as well like being in we are supposed to knock on wood go home um you are
1: where's home where's home
0: um home for my wife is toronto um home for me is nova scotia so we'll spend most of our time in toronto just based on the situation Right. Um, and we're hoping by the end of summer midsummer that things get a little bit more clear um a little easier to be around people um right we know that obviously when we do travel that it's going to be difficult for us to to like we're going to have to quarantine and um won't see family as well so it's i think it's important just to get home i think now to be as yeah. close oddly enough, without really seeing them or being able to see them, um, but knowing that we're in a distance where if we really need, needed to, then, then we could. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm really happy that you, I, I don't wanna say I've come to a conclusion or I've come to at peace with the situation because I think that's just impossible right now for most people, but I'm happy to hear that your family's okay.
1: Thank you, and I'm glad that yours is as well and that you're, go- you're going to get home.
0: I hope so. Do. I do. I, I really do. <laughs> yeah. um, Joanna, you talked a little bit about um, in the beginning just how you made a comment about that, how that's how you, um, you were not raised this way. And that was specifically about the arts. Can we go back just a little bit? Can you tell me a little bit about what did that look like when you were younger? Where did that influence come from to not be in arts, to, to not kind of explore those um, i guess experiences well,
1: i think it was is a mixed thing because if, if i look back on it my mother has always loved writing and words and she introduced me to writing and books early on so it's not like they never said to do it but i think it was also that the the sort of the corollary to that is i was very much raised on this sort of mythology of how to make an america or you can make an america or the american dream that if you put your head down and you play by the rules and you work hard. This is the country. That's why we moved here. This is the country where you can make it. And I think for me, that became trying to find a path where I wouldn't worry about money um, and, and be so conscious of it or not having as much as would be fully comfortable when I was growing up. Um, and, and so, you know, we grew up in, I grew up in, um, the town of Racine, Wisconsin. We moved there when I was six. Um, moved to America when I was six. And and this was the late 1970s. So it was in the wake of a serious auto, auto manufacturing closings. Um, and the town that we moved to didn't have very many Asian families at all. I went to a big public elementary school with my little sister, I'm one of four and there were two other boys in that school and they were Korean, but people always thought that we were one big Chinese family, which is funny. So I guess Philippines plus Korean equals huge Chinese family, which we weren't even, just because we were (laughs) the only people who looked like that in that Mm -hmm. big school. Um, And so it was this feeling of, and I really think the farm came out of these feelings of um, just trying to fit in, having one foot in two different worlds, right? Whether it was there or, at Princeton where I was a financial aid kid and um that level of wealth but really even more than the wealth was a class and the entitlement was very very new to me um people wow. who re- reflexively went on spring break with their friends I didn't even feel badly about it I just thought it was a little weird like I worked in the cafeteria through spring break I didn't think much of it but looking back I know that that's not what my friends were doing. They're all going on ski trips and other things or taking summer internships. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but they're, the really cool summer internships for college-age kids in America aren't paid. <laughs> so most of us can't take those because <laughs> they need to kind of live somewhere and eat. You know, just stuff like that was very new to me. Not that I couldn't do it because it's not like I could do, there were things I wanted to do that I couldn't afford to when I was younger, but it was more that my friends took it for granted that they could. That, that mm. was really new to me. Or being one of the few women on Wall Street, the first woman in private equity—all of that stuff, feeling out of it, just motivated me to be in it in a weird way. And then that, uh, that that—if you layer on that—kind of how I was raised and with a certain, probably at least in my dad's view, more narrow version of what success in America looked um, like—it just it never really occurred to me to go into writing. And quite honestly, I was scared. Sometimes, practical—I knew. Like one reason that I took off my senior year in college, I withdrew from school because at the time, I was my um, at the time they made it hard to study abroad. I think they still do. Princeton it was because I knew that I once I graduate, I have to pay debt, and I had never left the country at that point. We never traveled. We didn't really go on. Definitely didn't go on those kinds of vacations. And I said, once I graduate, it all kicks in, and that's it. I'm stuck. And so I took a year off, and I got some thesis funding to write my senior thesis, and I went to China, and I didn't do a study abroad program because those were expensive. I just went off the grid. I looked Chinese. People back then, you were not allowed to live with Chinese families, but I just pretended I was Chinese, made some friends and like tried not to talk to the old ladies oh. on the street with the armbands. And it was totally ran. Now that I have kids, I'm like, oh my God, it's pre-internet. I was somewhere in China. My parents didn't know. I totally lied about all this stuff because I knew they'd worry. I don't know what I was doing. I wasn't even part of a program. I was like wandering around China, living with random Chinese strangers. What was that? I don't even know why I'm talking about that right now, except for that that's the kind of things I did to get around the fact that once I graduated, there would be an onus on me to pay off this debt. And it definitely led me in a certain direction. And it wasn't writing, <laughs> for sure. So yeah,
0: is, I, 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 I'm one of those people, I am, I'm an optimist, and I love experiences, and that was an experience for you. and I think
1: It was, I'll tell you, it, some of the stories. I still haven't told my parents, uh, like I worked as a go-go dancer in a club. This is like too much stuff, but it was like so random. It was not a structured, safe my kids going abroad to be in this no I just sort of went it's, just
0: like, <laughs> it's your own definition <laughs> I don't know what I did
1: I had met some ambassador that someone had introduced me to who like hit on me even though he was like 70 looking back on it now I'm like what was I doing because my daughter's almost a teenager I'm like oh my god what was that year but it was a lot of material a lot of that living
0: awesome. I could, <laughs> but it was, would, you, would you care to unpack any of that
1: <laughs> it was crazy. As I'm talking, I'm like, it's crazy. The stuff that went down that I thought was like, if anything happened to me, no one would have known where I was in that country. You know, like I love it's it.
0: Crazy. I love it. I love it. And I, what is one of those things. Like when I coach basketball I would coach basketball, or I um, I coached basketball in university during my um, B.Ed. And I did. I started to coach basketball in um, high school, middle school as well. Specifically, high school when I was um, working with seniors or in university and Sometimes they'd ask questions about stuff, and I worked on—I coached a a female uh, women's team, and I was just an assistant coach. And it was hard because I had classes, et cetera. But regardless, um, they would ask questions about traveling and having experiences, and I honestly, for the most part, would mention to them, like, I think it's really important when you are younger that you try to have as many experiences as possible, whether you are scared or not. Um, There are going to be times where you feel unsafe. And you don't know what's going to happen. And I think you learn so much based on being uncomfortable and you, you put yourself in positions where you have to be uh, more critical about your thinking. You have to be more problem solving based. Like those are the things that you, you, you can't build those skills if you're not put in those positions or having those experiences.
1: And again, this could be because I'm raising my kids in New York city. Um, I gave a talk to some teenagers last year when the book came out and I was saying to them, you know, this, it was a little random that I went to China. There was no, it wasn't to pad my resume. It wasn't part of a plan. I had no plan. I just had never left the country. So I was trying to think of a place that would be cheaper that I could kind of afford and totally different. And, and to be in a space that's unmapped, because I feel like I've always had this question, how much of me is intrinsically me and how much is it the outside that I'm sort of pushing against? And I would, and I think we're all some mixture of who we are coming from us and some reaction to the outside world. So to put yourself in a place like China or anywhere where you've traveled, where there aren't those outside signposts, remember finding an old diagram from them. It's a really interesting, is a very slight weak word for that experience, right? It mm. is, you're, you could be anyone. you are anyone and is was the me there more me was it not and so I'm just interested in these issues like when I so so drawing it back to the book is these Filipina domestic workers when I was at home with my kid um they were all mothers they were all they were all happened to be single mothers um and some of them had left their kids back home in Manila and elsewhere to raise other people's kids in New York and They often told me that they admired me so much. Oh, you're the American dreamer. Oh, I hope my kid is as smart as you. Look how well you've done. Or as if we create ourselves wholly. That's the whole myth and I think falsity of the idea of the American dream or even meritocracy is that we create ourselves fully. But it's never that, right? Or I don't think it's ever fully that or even sometimes I don't think it's mostly that. It's a reaction to the system and the structures and the places you're put into and what you can do with that. And then there's hard work. And then there's luck. And then there's all this other stuff. But it's not. So that's not quite related to China, but it kind of was in the sense that that was the first of my life because I'd never traveled. I was been embedded in this tight Filipino family where I was just, I could write that story.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Wow. Which is wow. so
1: kind of crazy. And, I, it and it makes me sad for kids these days, at least in competitive places like New York, or maybe it's my generation, where they they're so pre-careerist, or they feel like they have to get into college, and be- that I'm like, dude, go go stand on unknown ground. It doesn't feel great all the time. In fact, it's pretty scary, and you might not. But how else do you figure out how much of it's you, you, and how much of it's outside? Of? Again, nothing to do with anything. Sorry. Do it. <laughs> I love I Have to edit this. Edit ended hard, Gary. <laughs> I love talking
0: to you. I love- So I have a lot of issue just with the transition. It's been a hard, um, but I, I, I 100% agree with you. Journaling or somehow grabbing all that information and those experiences will definitely appreciate looking back because those experiences go by so fast, so so, so fast. Joanna, you know I want to t- I want to talk. About Because I can only imagine the ups and downs um, and hardships uh, and struggles that it takes to, to, for one, have a family, um, to write a book. Like all those things in itself are very, very difficult. Um, so that alone, I recommend you, and I'm happy for you. And then, like how, <laughs> for someone like me who's. Um, I would consider myself an avid reader now, um, but picking up your book, and I literally read it in one day, and I'd never do that. Oh, you did? <laughs> I, never, I never do that. Like, this is wow. the only book that I've ever read in one day, and I couldn't put it down. Um, and I think it was based on, I think, I don't want to say my ignorance, but my lack of information about motherhood, I think, was a huge part um my lack of um just like trying to be more informed about the pressures of being a woman and then on top of that being a mother in a society that has all of these ideas of like what you should be um and i talked to my wife about this and she was like she didn't she didn't know you as an author she knew that we were reading the book and right away she's like this sounds like a good book for my book club <laughs> so she's now going to read it for her book club as well
1: oh that's so great
0: i'm wondering how do you come up with such a world that is so close to reality um in my opinion and i know you mentioned that in the in end the, at the end of the book as well just like in some of your thoughts how yeah this seems like it could be dystopian, it could be all these different things, but it is wrapped up in real experiences. Um, right, and,
1: no, and, and, and I think that's because the, the, the things that obsessed me are real, right? Whether it's, and I overuse the term straddling worlds because there were so many different ways you could say it, code switching or a mission, a mission of self to fit into different worlds, or, mm-hmm. um, I look, I, I've never been someone who's easily, comfortable but it could be because i'm always putting myself in these situations Mm -hmm. where i'm not comfortable right like Mm -hmm. i don't have to take a job where i'm the first woman hired i don't i didn't have to try to get into prince i could have stayed closer to home where i felt more comfortable but so i'm not saying it isn't poor me i straddled worlds i'm saying my life's trajectory has taken me in a mixture of choice and and external that where i have not i've felt a little bit everywhere Mm -hmm. um and the beauty of that, although there were many uncomfortable moments or moments I wished I fully fit in somewhere, <laughs> is that I feel like I do understand both sides to certain divides. And that's always interested me. It's especially interested me in the past few years and decades, really in our country, because we're so polarized in America on so many in so many ways, right? Whether it's by race or by, especially by politics lately or and... Um, and I just feel like we don't see each other. Mm-hmm. And this is a little bit of a random story, but I, but I was thinking about it for the first time in a long time last week, when I, right before I did this talk, virtual talk, um, because I think that in a weird way, this may have really informed the book without me realizing, which is that I was walking by this, the big city bank building in New York City one day. This is probably a year before I started to, to commit to writing the book. And um, there was this banker looking guy who walked like a rooster, In front of me, like cocky looking guy. And I had my preconceptions. I was like, this guy. (laughs) And there's a homeless young woman whom he passed. And then he circled, kind of doubled back, stopped, kneeled down in front of her, gave her money. But not only that, he said, he asked her her name. He asked her her name. I distinctly remember that because I was just so surprised. I'd never seen, I'd never done that. I'd never seen anyone do that. And she said, her name is Sarah or whatever. I think it was Sarah. And he said, I hope, you know, it's good to meet you, Sarah, God bless you. And then he went on and it was a couple things about, because then I actually jogged up to him. Cause I was like, why did you do that? Which I don't normally do to men in New York. Um, and he said, well, I just feel like um, it's not only that she's doesn't have a home and she's sitting there all day. He's like, I don't think anyone ever sees her. I don't think anyone ever talks to her. I don't think anyone ever looks at her. So she feels seen. And so one boom, like that hit me. Like, because how many times have I walked by and not even what if what if you don't even give the person money if you don't have a buck because now I don't care around cash what if I just ask someone's name so they it is safe if I felt safe um and two I totally judge that guy I totally and I used to be in finance I totally judge that guy and and I feel like I think about this stuff maybe more than other people we do it all the time and so when I got to know now I'm mixing everything up what I got to know um my friends who were domestic workers and they would tell me stories about their bosses probably more easily because I'm from the Philippines. We would also talk about food and making lumpia and all this kind of stuff, right? So it was like easier for them to tell me. Um, I could see both sides of it. I could see, I know some of my friends don't see the women who work in their homes in any real way. Um, But then sometimes I hear my friends who are nannies saying, they're so great, crazy stuff. Like, but you don't want to work it a fill in a fill-in-the-blank race or country of someone. You don't want to work for them. They're very cheap. They're very bad people. I'm like, oh no, no, whoa, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you can't say that. But, I mean, you can say it, but um, and so that was sort of the impetus in a weird to write the book, but I didn't have an idea for the book. And so when I mm. committed to writing the book, when I turned 40, super cliche, I would write for a few hours while the kids were at school every day. And I was writing short stories, and most of them were crappy. And the only one that was good at all, even though I didn't know it at the time, was a, a flash fiction piece, 800 words, 1,000 words, about a young Filipina baby nurse who leaves her newborn daughter at home to take care of someone else's child, and she's still lactating. I don't know why that was in my head. Like, how weird. It must be already hard to give up time with your kid to raise someone else's kid. But when you're, you've just had a baby, if you're breastfeeding, like you're and you see a baby, sorry, this may be too much info for you, but when you see a baby, and you're lactating, your boobs know, and -hmm. they, like, start doing their work, and it doesn't matter, and the baby smells you, and it doesn't know that you're his mom, or not, but they, it smells, and I, just for some reason, that made this intimate inequality that was so fascinating, so much more intense, so that was Mm -hmm. the only little tiny fiction piece that worked, but that wasn't a book, and then one day, a year and a half into a Kind of being depressed like i'm running all these bad short stories what am i gonna do just have a compilation of bad short stories like that's not good um i happened to read a newspaper article about a surrogacy facility in india and it was a very short article and i think it was about a change in regulations there but wealthy people could hire local indian women to of their babies and it's not luxury in fact they weren't very protected i don't think it's now banned in india i think because it wasn't uh, very healthy or great industry or how they treated these surrogates. But I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a second, what if I take my young Filipino baby nurse? And instead of going to be a baby nurse, she decides to work at this place. And what if I made it? I'm so interested in the marketing of, of virtue and, and and luxury in a certain kind of life. I just think it's like I, uh, uh, the other day when I still used to fly, I remember buying a pack of Kleenex in um, in the airport. And on it, it was like, you can be everything you want to be, just go do it. Mm. And I was like, wow, even the Kleenex is telling me to like live a certain life, much less, you know, I was like, wow, I can't even blow my nose without. Um, I was like, but what if there's a place that tried to make their clients feel like you're virtuous to spend gobs of money to hire these poor brown women because mm. we're gonna market it that way. And so then it just took on a life of its own. I mean, it was still hard to do, but all these ideas I have a rest, a meritocracy, of course you can fit into something like this, right, like everything I was obsessed with sort of fit in. And then wow. it was just a matter of trying to write it. <laughs>
0: wow. I love listening to, and this is like, I teach third grade, they're really young, but I love listening to the, um, I guess the process of like how you come up with ideas, because I think, especially as students, and I think they often feel that the process is very much, I make a, I make one story and this is, needs to be my like so-called good copy. Um, but I love that you done so many short stories and as an author you feel like at times these are crap or these aren't good as well oh
1: my god you know yeah. you should read if you like to write at all it's called um a writer's diary by virginia Woolf, and i read it all, almost every morning in the beginning because obviously mm-hmm. she's in the canon and she's amazing but her diary is she's like i mean i don't know the reviews for to the lighthouse are okay i think it's probably crap i mean she says it in a beautiful way but mm-hmm. it i mean she didn't know either and that was so cool to read plus she's such a beautiful her, that even her mm-hmm. scribbles are great um and I'm not sure you well who knows maybe there are people who know but Virginia Woolf didn't know either <laughs> and wow. she's you know wow
0: wow I think that's so cool I think that's so cool I think that yeah. it's, it's in itself that you just took the time I'm gonna spend x amount of time while my kids aren't here to just do some writing and then to make all those connections like even to like the businessman that you saw your friends or family to your experiences to what you saw in the paper. That's just a. I would love to see what like your white. You know how you always see like this whiteboard of just all this different directions and arrows right. and sticky notes. That would be really cool to see your process and how you came up with with those ideas. Um, let's talk about Jane and May and Ate. Like these are characters that I think for me. See what the connection for the Philippines. We ask ourselves, would we? Still picked up the book knowing that if it wasn't for the Philippines, um, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I feel like for me, I'm one of those people that I love reading stories from people of color just because I think that connection in itself makes me feel a little bit at home. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think my experiences and some of the things I think about often pop up and it makes me more interested. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, I think I would have still picked up the book because I'm also just curious, like the idea of the farm. In itself i think is not far like there was something like that <laughs> in real life
1: in the ukraine because i've <laughs> since researched. i didn't research for my book the ukraine it's still big business there is a company called BiotechCon, which is a terrible name like why wouldn't they make it a cozier name but it's they may they are the biggest surrogacy sort of outfit in ukraine and it's still huge business
0: see so i and and that part it fascinates me a lot of questions that we had was like how and it's hard because as a male, it's hard to even answer any other questions about it because you don't really have much of a say. Um, but one of the questions that came up was kind of like, what, how do you feel about women having this opportunity where on one end of the spectrum, like they are really trying to survive. They're looking for opportunity. They're looking for the American dream or a way out, so to speak. And then here's this place that's willing to kind of give you that um, through, this kind of prolonged experience I guess I don't know what the question is but I think that was a lot of the conversation we had very I guess we had a lot to say but at the same time we were very careful about how we said it and what we said because as men we don't really know what that experience is we don't know what women are thinking during those times um, I guess my question for you is how did the development of Jane happen and what does that look like for an author to get so in-depth about um, an experience and um, how they're living, um, find its way on paper, the way, that you've, yeah. the way that you've done it.
1: You know, Jane was my first character, as I mentioned to you. And some of it is because I know a few women, a handful of women who, and they all happen to be Filipinas, one from childhood and and more recently just in my life in New York, who had certain elements of Jane. And one of the big elements that I Realizes it it's this, it's almost believing so much in that idea of meritocracy that you believe because you're not a success the way, let's say, I'm just gonna say me because that's how some of these people think I am because I have a college, this great college degree and made a lot of money when I was in finance for a while. and um, That if meritocracy in America is true, that you deserve your success, what does it mean if you're not successful on that scale? Does that mean you deserve that? And my friends, who um, were mostly domestic workers, is not, but not making a lot of money, um, internalized that. And so they felt that they couldn't ask for more. And so one of the things, that, and I realized, kind of in writing a book, but even before that I was thinking about it, just to show my blinkers, is that I would give these women advice that they couldn't take. Meaning I would say things like, well, your boss shouldn't ask you to you know, clean up after the dog when you're there to cook. You should tell her that that's not part of your job, right? Like like they can say that. They can't say that to their boss. They need the job. So they're gonna clean up the dog's poop if they need to clean up the dog's poop. And and then there are all these other questions. Would the woman have asked her to do that if she were a white helper? I don't know. I'm not saying she but I don't know. Like all of these other questions came into play. But the big one for me was, not that I didn't have a right to give them that advice, but I had to have the humility to realize that I can say that because I, it is a privilege to be able to advocate for this. Right? And, and so seeing that, learning about myself through that, but also my friends, that they didn't, I just wanted to write someone like that. Someone who wanted the best. And then how do you do, so what's going to make a woman like that rattle the cage a little bit who doesn't believe she deserves a child? Because mothers will do, like the monument. they will do, like, they will walk through fire for their child. And so that's how that. Is.
0: And then I also am curious about Lisa because we talked a lot about Lisa as well in the story and the beginning she for me anyway, she comes across as someone who's just I guess taking advantage and she tends to kind of do what she she's like a rebel for the most part. Um and then as the story goes on even more there's this like very I don't want to say light I don't know what the word is but you tend to start to realize where she's coming from a little bit more Um, how though she had done certain things that may make you feel a certain way um, she's also looking out for herself she's also trying to make sure she's comfortable but at the same time she is 110% for the people that are there and that kind of Slowly starts to come about in the story, and I'm wondering how did Lisa's character develop, um, and what is yeah. what is the, I guess the audience's respond to to Lisa, and um, what does she represent, maybe for you as well. So
1: so I so I don't outline, and I got to tell you like a lot of the stuff that came up just sort of came, like all of a sudden like Reagan had to walk by Jane and she was talking to someone and that became Lisa, quite honestly, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and then I started running her in it and. And all of a sudden she came out and she's kind of sarcastic and, but as I got, so that's a lot of it. Like for instance, this is the main propulsive part of it, like the the billionaire. I didn't know at one point I was like, Oh my God, I'm writing a pregnancy who done it. I didn't want to write a pregnancy who done it. It just sort of came out. Um, So it's not like it was so planned, but the reason that Lisa, I liked her when she kind of popped out like that, why I kept working with her and didn't just delete her is that one, she was funny and it was nice to have a little bit of levity because it can be get a little dark, but then also Um, it was kind of back to what we were saying earlier that she is able to look a little bit askance at the farm or be the rebel because she's already done it twice and Mm -hmm. has money banked. Mm -hmm. not because she's a privilege but because she Mm -hmm. has some money stored away um and you could argue she was a privilege she went to a great call like she even if she hadn't done that she could fall back on the university of virginia education right so i'm just very interested in so the, sometimes the judgments we put on people as if the onus for one's success is really just on them. It's like we have to lean in. Okay, yeah, we should all lean in as women to do great, And except for if there's structural, structural sexism and we don't have mm-hmm. paid parental leave, then it doesn't matter how much we lean in. Well, that, mm-hmm. I think, is writ large in our society by this story of meritocracy. I really think that even though we only talk about the good stuff, like if you work hard, and you make it, you deserve it, there mm-hmm. is the implicit shadow no, opposite, no which Thank is you. that there is a shame to being poor. And I was never poor at Princeton, but what's interesting to me as a 47-year-old looking at that 18, 19-year-old was, it's not that I, um, like, why couldn't I have just said, oh, I don't know what lacrosse is, or I haven't read that book, or, oh, I've never been skiing. Like, why, why couldn't I have just said that as a fact? Why was there shame associated with that? And I don't know, I'm not a shrink and I shrink, and I can't talk to my 18-year-old self, but I think it is something wrapped into this idea that it's kind of your fault if you didn't make it or your parents didn't
0: make it, or whatever, so. I, I get goosebumps just listening to you talk about it, honestly, because I think it's such a, I think it's such a great story. I really, really do. I really, really do. I think it's an amazing Thank you. story. I just have a couple more questions, if that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah.
1: Yes, um, I love it. I love talking what, to you, and I want you, you to tell you me later, later. I'm going to email with you. to. I uh-huh. want to hear about your your group of guys and what they do. I, l-
0: I would okay. love to share with you. you. I'd love to share with you. How, what, what is... What would you say you would want people to get from your book? Because um, uh, for me, I think my takeaway is probably going to be different from um, anyone else's takeaway. Uh, when, when people pick up your book, they are finished reading it, or while they're reading it, what do you want them to to think about? Um, what are some of the messages that you hope they um, come across or start to see as yeah. they're reading or finish your book?
1: And it's most basic, and it did happen a few times like a lot of times actually at its most basic i would hope that um, maybe a reader who reads a book would come out the other end and see someone a little more clearly whom they've never seen before whether because they're busy or because they never really noticed them or because they look different and they just assume like like i assume with that banker i would hope that you, someone would take the time and i will say dozens and dozens and dozens of times like a lot of times I had women come up to me on book tour, whether it was in Canada, Australia, whatever, Sydney one woman um, or around New York and say to me, I read your book. It was so cringy because I have realized I had a housekeeper from fill in the blank, the Philippines, Mexico, somewhere um, for 15 years. And I, I, I don't think I ever really knew her or saw her. It, and um, when the first few times that happened, I got really awkward because I felt like I had to say something like, that's okay. But I didn't mm. know that it was okay. And then not a lot of priests. So I didn't know what to do. And then I realized I don't have to say it's okay. I can just say, mm-hmm. "Well, thank you for telling me," and I'm so glad it made you see that, right? But mm-hmm. I don't know why I didn't figure that out for like a month of feeling these coming.
0: You have to have the the other answers. thing,
1: which I'm really interested in, especially in this moment, is you know we tend to think in American capitalism, at least, that um, that all of these willing transactions. My dad always said this. Um, are okay because they're willing meaning my book was very much compared to handmaid's tale and i actually think it's a false comparison because in the handmaid's tale the handmaids are forced to bear the children of these people um but in the farm uh these hosts these surrogates choose to go right no one's threatening them with physical violence they choose to go and so under our story of american capitalism that's fair game because no them. that's what free trade is. Free trade is both parties come out better and maybe they do come out better at the farm. But I guess my question that I think about a lot and I would hope people might think about a little is, are we okay with that? Are we in a society where the two sides of many, increasingly many transactions because of inequality are so imbalanced? Some people have no power and such few bad choices. Is that really okay? Are we really okay just keeping on going in the direction of the because it's free. I'm saying free in little finger quotes because I would question how free some of those choices are for many, many people mm-hmm. increasingly, like like our essential workers. Like I, I, I applaud them and I'm so, but let's be honest, like how free is free when you've got to pay rent? And are we still gonna see those people in 12 months when this pandemic passes? Are, mm-hmm. are we gonna still treat them as essential or is that just for now because we need them? And are we okay with our little cumulative decisions to be okay with these sort of free trades? And again, I'm doing that finger-cooler <laughs> rather free. Mm-hmm. Are we okay with what that means in Agri, the society we live in? I mean, maybe we are, but I will tell you that most of the readers came up to me, were like, God, it was so dystopian. And so may really made me feel uncomfortable. But I just was on a panel for, with um uh, the Filipe- Filipino-American art in LA, so a lot of Filipinas, and the woman who was um interviewing me said you know i never saw it as dystopian because i'm from the philippines and i know so many women who have they have worked in a surrogacy farm but they haven't seen their kids in 15 20 years because they're they, they gotta work and it's not just women they're men i know in, in the middle east a lot of men are laborers and they leave their family so i just i don't know that i know the answer but but i think it begins with asking the question if we're okay with keeping on going like this and it's getting worse, right? Cause inequality is getting even wider and more people are falling in the cracks. Are we okay with that? So that's a lot to put on a reader. I'm just, I'm not saying that's what you have to get out of it, but if a little bit, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think,
0: I think uh, for some of us, it can be a lot. Um, but if we, as a society or world, want to make this place of the world a better place, like why are we not asking ourselves that question? Like, are what we do? is what we're doing okay um and i think we leave it at that and you know, if people unfortunately higher up who are on that hierarchy believe it is like how do you dismantle that when you don't have the power because often right. those who don't have the power don't make the decision so right it makes it a very hard triangle to try to to crack but What's in America, there's
1: a big answer in November that people could, you know, <laughs> It's true. so that's one way.
0: <laughs> that is very, very true. Very, very true. Joanne, I've kept you way over time, so I'm going to ask one more question, if that's okay. Yes. Um, I guess, what do you like, and I always I like asking this question mainly because as an author, I know that you are always very, very busy. What do you like to do for fun? Like, I've been to New York a couple times, and I really love New York. I haven't been there in a long time, but I love New York. Um, What do you like to do for fun?
1: Well, I love um, going out with friends. I like to cook. So we used to have dinner parties before the book got really crazy. And I'm probably unsurprisingly after having talked together, I'm not someone who fits neatly in one group. So my friends are, our friends are really disparate from people in finance to actors to whatever. And it's, I love getting them together. Um, And then I'm on the board of this group called The Moth. And I really love going to the shows. I mean, one of the reasons I got involved with The Moth is that, um, you can end up just in your bubble in your certain social world and um, the crowd at the, they're like live storytelling basically the oh, crowds cool. are so random it's great you go there and I'm like yeah this is why I love New York because it's so random and 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 there are curated shows but there are also slams where people can put their names in. The head. there's a theme like a question like what's your most embarrassing whatever and and they'll pick your name and you say a five minute and sometimes they're horrible but they're awesome they're awesome because they're so raw and people do, I, I love it so that's one of my favorite things that's
0: cool as well. that's so cool and again that's a, that's definitely a new york thing like you gotta be for to get up on stage for one
1: i know not me but yeah and
0: just be able to talk Mm -hmm. um and I guess I want to say judged as well unfortunately but you are kind of being judged people are regardless of how you may feel but people are looking at you and they're thinking things and they're believing things like similar to what you said um earlier but that's a lot of bravery happening right there for sure I'd say right yeah yeah so and I want to thank you so much for just having a conversation today um it's good to like see your face and um I I think go back to like the I guess the theme of this podcast is that I a hundred percent see you. And um, I truly appreciate the work that you've done um, just in the book and I have it here. Hey. <laughs> um, and I do 100% recommend it. And I highly recommend it to to, to anybody. Um, and you did an amazing, that's your, this is your first book. So I think the expectations here i'm just saying well, i'm
1: back in that i'm back i'm writing bad <laughs> short stories again i gotta tell you gary back to writing bad short stories <laughs>
0: i love it i love it i love it and i'm hoping all your